give a bit more information on the background to this chapter. Uh, the last uh, two visits, uh, we've considered chapter one that, that uh, I've made. We've considered chapter one and chapter two. And I just want to conclude those studies this morning from Habakkuk 3. And it's Habakkuk's response to chapters, what, what God has told him in chapters one and two. But we'll come to that after our next hymn. <clears throat> Habakkuk chapter 3. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shigeniath. Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember your mercy. God came from Teman, a holy one from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise, rays flashed from his hand, where his power was hidden. Plague went before him, pestilence followed his steps. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled and the age-old hills collapsed. His ways are eternal. I saw the tents of Kushan in distress, the dwellings of Midian in anguish. Were you angry with the rivers, O Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode with your horses and your victorious chariots? You uncovered your bow. You called for many arrows. You split the earth with its rivers, the mountains you saw and writhed, torrents of water swept by, the deep roared and lifted its waves on high. <clears throat> Sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spear. In wrath you strode through all, through, uh, my apologies, verse 12, in wrath you strode through the earth and in anger you threshed the nations. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one, that is the Messiah. You crushed the leader of the land of the wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. With his own spear, you pierced his head. When his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as, through about to devour, as though about to devour the wretched who were hiding, you trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud and there were no grapes on the grapevines, Though the olive crops fail and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Saviour. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. 
for the director of music on my stringed instruments. Blessed are those who hear the word of God, who keep it in their hearts and who do it. Amen. You open your scriptures to Habakkuk 3 and as we do that let us bow in prayer. Father again we come to this your word that it might speak to our hearts and encourage us that it might challenge us on one hand and yet establish our faith and strengthen our faith in the face of this world and the confusion of it. Father bless us and minister to our souls in Jesus name. Amen. Well, just uh, very quickly to recap uh, what we've looked at uh, in Habakkuk 1 and 2. And uh, Habakkuk starts off with a complaint. And his focus is upon the nation of Israel, his own people. They're in the land of Israel. And uh, uh, um, Habakkuk's been really concerned in the, in the, the, the grammar of the original language in the first couple of verses suggests that he's been praying about Israel's circumstances and when you go back into books like Isaiah or Ezekiel uh, Jeremiah they're prophets to the same people in the same era they've come uh, perhaps before uh, uh, Habakkuk uh, and, and given their prophecy but when you go into those books and you find out what's going on actually within Israel itself and when we think of Israel as the church of the Old Testament it's a terrible a picture that is painted and we get a glimpse of what's going on here uh, in within the church of the Old Testament by listening to Habakkuk's voice Lord how long have I got to pray to you you can hear his frustration he's confused sometimes we're a bit like that ourselves aren't we 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 pray and then we eventually give up because there seems to be no one listening Habakkuk's got to that point. He's got to the point where he's about to give up and this is what we hear. Lord, how long have I got to pray before you listen to me? Been there? Yes. Many of us have. He said, even when I tell you about the violence of my people, you still don't listen. You don't respond. Why won't you save us? Why do you show me iniquity? Why am I allowed to sit in my, uh, amongst my people, your chosen people? And all around me is iniquity. Why do you cause me to see trouble? You hear the godly heart. He looks around his nation. God's chosen people. All he sees is trouble, violence, and problems. Plundering and violence are before me. What have we watched on our television screens in the last few weeks, few days in London? Plundering and violence. Wanton destruction. There is strife and contention that arises. In verse 4 he says the law is powerless. 
just coming up in the car this morning, we listened to a news service at one stage. And the authorities in Britain are thinking of charging rioters with attempted murder against police who were unarmed. The law is powerless. Justice never goes forth. In our own courts, how often do we hear of the cry that's not justice? The wicked surround the righteous. Why is it that we often sit as Christians and ponder what we read in the newspapers or on the, see on the television? I think, Lord, where are you in all of this? Why don't you stop it? Why is it that the unjust seem to uh, gain the upper hand? Why is it that the Christian voice is stifled when our governments will change laws to allow sin and iniquity to abound for argument's sake? I think it was last time I was here I gave some figures on abortion. And I don't have those in front of me and I can't really remember them. But in the United States, I think there was something like 680,000 soldiers lost their lives in all of the wars they've been associated with up to 1991, Iraq War. 680,000 soldiers. Terrible. Nobody would disagree with that. But in the same period, something like 53 million, was it, babies have been aborted. And that's only the ones that go through hospitals. And nobody bats an eyelid. Daniel cries out, Lord, why won't you hear? Why won't you listen? What's the Lord's response in chapter 1? He says, Habakkuk, I'm going to do something that even if I tell you, you won't believe it. I'm going to raise up a nation that's going to sweep over my people and take them into captivity, an act that you will not even believe. Their sin is before me. Open your eyes and look over the horizon. I'm building up a nation to invade you. Then in chapter 2, Habakkuk asks another question and he says, Why, Lord, why do you send the people that are more evil than ourselves upon us? God's answer in chapter 2, he says, Because I'm God. That's really all he says. When you go through chapter 2, that's all God says to him. Why do I do it, Habakkuk? Because I'm God. At the end of chapter 2, Habakkuk writes, after all of this, he's perplexed, puzzled, doesn't get it. And he 
says at the end there, he says, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let the earth keep silence before him. Habakkuk doesn't understand, but he's got to the point in his prayerfulness and he's working things out theologically in his mind and his heart. Who is this God? That's the beginning of his questions. Who are you? I believed you're the creator. You created the world and the universe and everything that it contains in order that you could stand across on it for my salvation. And yet you're allowing all this sin and evil around me that's destroying society and even the world, morally and ethically. He believes in his heart at base level that God is sovereign in all things. That he controls the wind and the oceans and the waters of the earth. He's able to snap his fingers and bring a judgment of a flood. And raise up a man and his sons and their wives to build an ark. A huge vessel. Something like 120 miles. I don't know what that is in kilometers. What is it? 300? From the ocean. Out in the desert. Makes himself a laughing stock. And for 120 years while he did this, he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the only response he got was blasphemy. They spat in his face, as it were. Lord, you're a righteous and holy God. You're sovereign. How can you allow this? When we look around our own nation, as God's people, we look at things and we see things. Lord, how on earth is it that you allow things? His answer to Habakkuk is the same answer he gives to us, because I'm God. He doesn't justify his actions here in Habakkuk. In New Testament, we get various glimpses of it. So what's the solution and understanding as we try and work out this problem we have of history and what we might call the sovereignty of God? Chapter 3 here in this book gives us the answers. And that, what I've just gone through, is a, a summary of, I guess, of what has gone before. So that sets the context. Habakkuk comes back. And finally he says, yes, Lord, I accept that you're on your throne, that you are in your temple. Do we really believe today as we come in the face of all the events of the world that cause us concern and worry? When we see the apparent decline of the Christian church in in the Western world. Where is God? Are we able to come and sit here this morning in the silence of our own hearts before God himself? We've just sung God is in his temple. Do we believe that? 
Do we really believe in our heart of hearts that the Lord God in Jesus Christ is on the throne and in his providential power is governing the nations, allowing wars and earthquakes and misery, famines, and all of the rest of the horrible things that are going on. Bushfires, earthquakes, tidal waves, riots, civil wars. Can we say in our heart of hearts, yes, Lord, you are on your throne. Therefore, I will be silent. That's where Habakkuk comes to. Let's consider for a few minutes how he actually deals with it. He has to convince himself first that God does come. That is, that God does visit the earth. That he uh, providentially, uh, on one hand, governs everything that goes on. That he created the world. That he brought judgment that he brought grace and mercy at the cross of Calvary. And as we go through this, we'll see that where God is present, two things come together. One is the gift and grace of salvation, and the other one is is judgment. Where there is grace, there is also judgment. Where there is judgment, there is also grace. Think of the flood. Mercy was coming in the form of a floating box. The word ark comes into English through the Latin and all the word ark in Latin means is a box. Salvation and mercy was coming in a box but with that grace and salvation so was judgment coming. Let's have a look at this. The Lord comes. We often hear today, don't we, that the old truths of Scripture have no relevance for us today. Many people regard the Old Testament as old hat, and in the Christian church I'm saying, uh, regard the Old Testament as old hat and it really has nothing to say to us today. But I hope that we've already seen over the last couple of months as we've looked at this, that the Old Testament does have something to to say to us. And here Habakkuk reminds us, and it's a timely message for for the whole of the Christian church in the world, of just who God is and what our attitude ought to be, even in the face of trial and difficulty and confusion and doubts. Habakkuk here in chapter 3 revises or recites in his own heart and his own mind all the great events where God has actually visited the earth. See, that's what we've got to keep reminding ourselves. That's why we read Psalm 104 to start with. It reviews all the activity of God where he's come and just simply reminds our hearts that he has visited us Lord, I've heard your speech and was afraid. Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years and in the midst of the years make it known. 
In your wrath, remember your mercy. God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. It's a reference uh, to what we would call Edom uh, and what have you. And he says this in, uh, in the second part of verse 3. His glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. Surely a reference to creation. Turn quickly to Psalm 19. Psalm 19 verse 1 says, The the heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament shows his handiwork. Day to day it uh, utters speech and night unto night reveals knowledge. There's no speech or language where their voice is not heard. That is, that the light of the stars, the night sky... It doesn't matter what the nation is, what the culture is, what the language is. They minister to to humanity and they speak of the glory of God. When we sit out in the summer sky coming up, sit out in the summer at night, in the evenings and look up at the sky, a clear sky and see the starry skies, what does it do to your heart and your mind? You think nothing of it? Ah, it's all just evolution. Or does it cause us to ponder how it came to be? The heavens declare the glory of God. Habakkuk says the same things. His glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. You walk out into your gardens today. And you see the bulbs budding. Springs are just around the corner, isn't it? When you see the beauty of flowers. When I arrived this morning, people were overjoyed that the sun was shining. A beautiful day in the sunshine. You see, the created order speaks to us and it warms us. If only we've got eyes and ears to hear and to see. His brightness was like the light and had rays flashing from his hand and there his power was hidden. When God created the world, Genesis 1, young people, where did the light come from? The sun and the moon and the stars hadn't been created on day one and day two. Where did the light come from? When we go to the New Testament in Revelation, it says there in Revelation that there will be no need of the sun in glory. And yet there will be light. Where does the light come from? His brightness was like the light and he had rays flashing from his hand and there his power was hidden. Before the moon and the stars and the sun were created, The glory of the Lord himself lit the earth and the universe. And so it will be in eternal glory. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and startled the nations and the everlasting mountains were scattered.
think Psalm 19 it is. It says the Lord spans the universe with the span of his hand. He spoke and it was so. And here he's reviewing the flood. He stood and measured the earth and looked in the star- and startled the nations and the everlasting mountains were scattered. The hills were bowed. His ways are everlasting. For 120 years that was preached by Noah and his sons. And then one day it started to rain. And the door was closed. Today the cross of Christ cries out across this world. And he is coming. And if we've only got eyes and minds to see the events of this world that are, spo- excuse me, that are spoken of in the scriptures, disasters, one thing after another. He says, they're my warning signs. And then I'm going to close the door. It is finished. In verse 7, I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction and curtains of the land of Midian trembled. It speaks of an oppressor against Israel. And Kushan refers, my understanding is that it refers to Egypt. And then from verse 8, he speaks generally in poetic language of the exodus creation the flood the exodus under Moses God visiting the earth visiting his people Yet people, even in the Christian church today, want to explain these events away as fairy tales and myth. Right through the Old Testament, when people become confused, when God's people became confused, they stopped and they paused and they thought back about how God has visited in human history. And largely two events come up, even in the Old Testament. And one in particular is the Exodus, which is an illustration of God's bringing salvation. And guess what the other one was spoken of in the Old Testament is? It's the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Having said that, I now can't, yes I can, I've just found it. Verse 13, you went forth for the salvation of your people, for salvation with your anointed. And the Hebrew word there is Mashiach, or what we would pronounce as Messiah. Who's Messiah? He is Jesus Christ. 
See, even in the Old Testament, the people looked forward for that day when sins could be forgiven in Christ, in Messiah. When salvation would become a real thing, when God would visit the earth in the form of Jesus Christ, taking on human form and likeness and dying for our sins. First of all, in strife, we need to remind ourselves that God has visited and therefore he will again. The second thing that he says to um, Habakkuk is, uh, the world belongs to me, Habakkuk. I'm God. I made it and I will order your salvation and the salvation of all of my people my way. O Lord, you were displeased with the rivers. Was your anger against the rivers? Was your wrath against the sea? And of course, the answer to that is in the negative. His anger wasn't directed against the rivers in Egypt when he poisoned them, made them flow with blood. His anger wasn't against the ocean or the fresh water underground when he caused the flood. He was angry with his people who denied him. And so we see just in this small picture not only of God coming in salvation for his people, but we see judgment at the same time. And of course, uh, when the flood came, there was grace. You see, there was mercy. Because salvation for Noah and his sons and their wives and for any other person that would listen had arrived. God had visited them. His mercy was great. And yet the world rejected him. What happens when Messiah comes into this world? John chapter 1 in the New Testament. He came to his own people. His chosen people. And they put him on a cross and rejected him. It's probably talking about the Jewish people there. But I want to suggest to us that it's not just the Hebrew people of old that he's addressing there. But when we question God, we put him on a cross and crucify him because he doesn't act the way we want him to. When the bushfires happened there a few years ago, <coughs> a lot of life and property was lost. I was astounded at times to hear people's response. Many people saying that they were Christians, but they weren't anymore. How could a righteous and a holy God do this? You see, there's a problem in their own thinking that they couldn't resolve and didn't know how to resolve. 
It's not the people's fault. I would suggest it's a problem in the Christian church generally. They didn't know how to resolve the issue of history. There's a real problem there of that destruction. And it was total, wasn't it? Terrible. And the sovereignty of God. I think one of the things that I mentioned last time I was here that in America there was a survey done of the mega churches in, in America and I don't, the problem with it, the survey is it didn't tell us how many people were surveyed. But 47% of those surveyed in the mega churches said they didn't know who Jesus Christ was. Now this is in the Christian church so-called, the evangelical church and 47% of the people said they didn't know who Jesus Christ was. And of the other 53%, 25% of that 53% said, yes, he's got something to do with Easter and Christmas. Is there something wrong with the Christian church? And what has been peddled from pulpits and teaching lecterns and Bible studies? And we wonder today perhaps why the world is in the mess that it's in and why evil and iniquity seem to be on the rise. But notice here in chapter 3, Habakkuk doesn't go back to, to the problem that he had with Israel. And we've got to learn to follow his pattern. I've just come from 10, 10 years or so, just on 10 years, of more, down in the Mornington Peninsula. And I could tell you things that go on in churches down there that would curl your hair. In public. No red faces. No sense of shame or guilt. Why? It's easy for me to fall into the trap of being negative about the church. Because there's not much in the church I haven't seen in those short years of ministry that's negative and rotten. But Habakkuk doesn't go back there. He looks away from the negativeness of what we might see in the Christian church, his own church, our church. Uh, in the Western Church, I mean, in the New Testament Church. He turns his mind to the throne of God and to Jesus Christ. Notice here in chapter 3, he doesn't look around the pagan nations, Babylon in this case, say, Lord, they're more evil than us, and you're sending them upon us. It's easier to look at other nations and see what we would consider evil. In Islamic nations, for argument's sake, the, the way women are treated and uh, the way they treat some men. Life is short. Uh, no, not short, cheap. Killing seems to be part of the nature of things. We can look at that and point our fingers and look down our long noses. But Habakkuk doesn't. 
Once he's seen how God has visited and once he has seen and started to grasp and to see who God is, that God is on his throne. See, all those things disappear and his focus is on Christ and Christ alone. In verses 16 to 19, and let me finish, Habakkuk says, the Lord's desire is our joy. Listen to it from halfway through verse 16. That I might rest in the day of trouble when he comes to the people. He will invade them with his troops. He's talking about the Lord. And he says, though the fig tree may not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, though though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, and though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. You see, he's saying even though the land becomes barren, totally destroyed, he said, I will not point my finger to the people who did it. Because he knows his own sin. He says, yet, uh, in verse 18, yet in spite of all of this, I will rejoice in the Lord and I will joy in the God of my salvation. And I want us just to, I want us to go from this place this morning with that thought in our minds. And let me ask you, not as a statement, but as a question, will you go from this place today refreshed, And take great delight in the God of your salvation, Jesus Christ. When you go home and you turn the television and watch the midday news, or whatever your habit is, maybe this evening, will you sit there and say, well, Lord, where are you? Or are you going to say, ah, I will delight in the Lord God of my salvation and let that world wash over us that's all the Lord wants is for us to trust him let us walk in the light and the leading of uh, Habakkuk casting aside the cares and the concerns of the world not to ignore them but not to focus on them point our hearts and our minds given to the Lord that we would rejoice in him throughout our days. Amen.